Hello, and welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. We are four months into Israel's bitter conflict in Gaza, and so many questions remain. Can Israel truly achieve its goal of rooting out Hamas? Is a hostage deal that will get the remaining 130-plus Israelis remaining in Gaza a real possibility? And will this government be willing to pay the price? And even if a resolution is possible on that front, what will happen on Israel's northern border? And will the Houthi attacks on international shipping draw the Western world into this conflict? Here to address all these questions and talk about some of the failures that led to October 7th is Major General Tamir Haman, former head of the IDF Intelligence Directorate, a job that he held during Israel's last major conflict in Gaza, Operation Guardian of the Walls, in 2021. Today, he is Managing Director of the Institute for National Security Studies. Our conversation, coming up. Welcome, Tamir Heyman. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. As we speak, we are 122 days into the conflict in Gaza with Hamas. Could you start by mapping out for our listeners exactly what is happening right now in the military sense in different parts of Gaza, where we stand in the north, in the south, and whether, in your view, given that we set out in this conflict with the goal of uprooting Hamas's military infrastructure, if not toppling Hamas completely, whether you assess the situation today and feel that Israel is succeeding in moving towards that goal. Okay, let's start with the tactical level because I think it's the simple and more um, obvious. Um, obviously, it's very uh, easy to identify what's really happening. Then we'll move on to the more complicated strategic level. In the tactical F level, the main effort of IDF right now is centered in the southern part of the Gaza Strip in Khan Yunus. Khan Yunus is the, one of the um, brigades of the Hamas military branch, and the operation there started about a month and a half ago, and it was oriented to, um, to tackle, to kill the leaders of Hamas that uh, oriented or initiated the attack of the 7th of October, mainly Yahya Sinwar and his brother, who are located their home hometown is the Khan Yunus and the leader of the El Qassam unit. This is the military branch, uh, Muhammad Def. All of those three, the command major command post was in Khan Yunus. They have succeeded to evacuate themselves for an unknown location beneath the ground of Khan Yunus or Rafah. But while conducting after them, the IDF is what we call dismantling the battalions of the Khan Yunus Brigade. We have already, the IDF has already destroyed three of the fourth battalions. This is the main operation right now, and it is concentrated right now as we speak on the uh, Khan Yunus refugee camp, the birthplace of Yahya Sinwal, which is uh, very important in symbolical matter, and the other reason is that most of the the militants, the terrorists from the more eastern battalions have evacuated themselves to the refugee camp to seek asylum. So right now the 
the paratroopers brigade is uh, working the very very hard complicated scenario from door to door highly dense uh, area uh, very complicated the other the, the other uh, effort is in the northern part of gaza street just a reminder we have already the idf has already destroyed the two northern brigades of Hamas in the northern part of Gaza Strip, in the, in the surrounding of Gaza City, in the northern part of Gaza Strip, there were two battalions, two brigades that have already destroyed. After the destruction of the, the military element of those two brigades, the, the IDF has evacuated, has redrawn from the, the Gaza City. But you have to understand that after the destruction of the structural element of Hamas as a, as a sort of a terror army, it has its army structure. After the destruction of those structure, there is the, it, the, uh, the Hamas returns, it, it falls back to a more terror guerrilla-like position. There you have small pockets of resistance that are trying to rejoin and regenerate their capability. The IDF had located that in the Shefa, the Shati refugee camp, some sort of that organization took place. And there now, as we speak, there is a raid of the Almo Brigade, the 401 Brigade, into back to Shati refugee camp after a month that we have, they have not been there to eliminate those resistance pockets that are still there. And the third effort is, of course, the defense, the defensive or surrounding the Gaza Strip. In Gaza right now, as we speak, so if to sum things up, there are three different methods of operation simultaneously. In the northern part of Gaza Strip, raids by brigades dedicated to root out pockets of resistance after the raid will completed, we will evacuate, the, the IDF will evacuate the Gaza city. In the southern part of Gaza Strip, Khan Yunis, high intensity conflict of maneuvering and conquering the Hamas, last outpost in the Rafah, in the Khan Yunis refugee camp. And last, in the small southern part of, of Gaza Strip, just across the border with Egypt, there is the last remaining brigades of Hamas, the Rafiyah Brigade. We haven't really touched it yet, except for aerial raids of fire operations, air force attacks, etc., etc., because of the fact that most of the displaced persons, of the, the civilians displaced persons from Gaza are located there. It is very complicated to maneuver there. It is highly volatile and highly delicate uh, situation with uh, Egypt, because unless we we'll solve the problem of the density of the evacuated uh, civilians, uh, maneuvering there can uh, push them into Egypt, and Egypt will consider that as an act of war. So that is uh, something that is still yet to be solved in the future. So right now, the war seems to be at a strategic turning point. 
After weeks of insisting the messaging from the government, from the military, that the way to get our hostages free is to keep the military pressure going and fighting full force, the ticking clock on the hostages seems to be driving the government in the direction of some sort of long-term ceasefire in exchange for a hostage release. Hamas has dug in its heels. It says it won't start negotiating until a complete ceasefire is declared. Um, As strong as the pressure is to get the hostages out, is agreeing to any kind of long-term or even permanent ceasefire with Hamas at all in the cards from the Israeli point of view? There are two obstacles confronting us or fronting us in face of a hostage deal. One is the ceasefire, and the second is the amount of prisoners, murderers, etc., that we're going to release from the Israeli prisoners, the Palestinian Palestinian prisoners that will be released from our prison. The amount, and let's call it the quality in their eyes, that is uh, how... uh, um, in case of, uh, of of people with blood on their hands and terrorists and etc cetera, etc cetera. the first obstacle i think can be solved it's a matter of one month or two months and a kind of assurances from the international community that israeli will not return back to fire i think that's not really the case that's really not crucial because Returning back to fight, to fighting is something that we have done before after the previous deal. And if we will be evoked, if there will be a threat by the Hamas, Israeli keeps its sovereignty and keeps its responsibility on eliminating threat when they appear. So there will be, I imagine, thousands of reasons why to, if we will decide to return back to fighting without breaching any kind of international guarantees, because that's how Hamas works. It will continue to be a resistance organization and terror organization, and it will, so, and it will give us plenty of reasons why and when to return back to fighting. So that's really not the issue. The issue is the price. How many and who are the people that will be released from prisoners? And it's the the question whether the price that they will ask in return for a hostage will be approved by the current Israeli government is something that's really not sure. I tend to think that no, the, the current structure of the Israeli government will not approve a large scale hostage deal. The first deal, the price of the, the was the, 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 for each one of our hostages, we released three prisoners. That's the scale. That's the benchmark of an, any future deal. I assume that Hamas will not go for that kind of a benchmark. We will not. We'll, we'll demand higher prices, and that's going to be very difficult to approve uh, in the Israeli government. But there's also an issue of expectations and management of expectations. If this government has declared over and over again that they are going to rid Gaza of Hamas, can they stand politically essentially agreeing to keep Hamas in place as a ruling force in Gaza? There's been a lot of talk now about uh, parts of northern Gaza that they've withdrawn from, that Hamas is asserting its authority back there. I mean, isn't 
allowing Hamas to continue to rule Gaza in any way, shape or form an admission of defeat and inability to achieve the stated goals of the war? If you do not give alternative uh, civilian address to the population that peoples in 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 uh, Gaza eventually you'll end up with a chaos and you'll end up with Hamas ruling so that's a problem but there is there can be a replacement for the governing element of Hamas if you decide for just for example there are a few uh, potential solutions for example one of the one of them is the Palestinian Authority. Let's imagine that in, that in a framework of a hostage deal, the international community somehow will present the assurances needed to Hamas in order to cease fire in exchange for them accepting the governing force of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas could uh, stay, declares that he did not defeat totally and still maintain his civilian uh, uh, capabilities, but the ruling element of Hamas will be the Palestinian Authority. That is something that can be acceptable by Hamas. The question is, would be that enough for from the Israeli eyes? Uh, in the bottom line, we have changed the regime. Hamas is no longer in charge of the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority. We have with them various of agreements has returned, renewed their sovereignty over the Gaza Strip. In the other element, you have not eliminated Hamas as an ID. Hamas is a social group. You eliminated just the military element by destroying it in the military operation, and you eliminate the formal position as a ruling entity. Is that enough? That depends who you ask. Allowing the Palestinian Authority to be an integral part of the ruling of Gaza in what people are referring to as the day after um, is also a building block of what's being batted around um, called the American In Initiative for Regional Change, which you've expressed uh, strong support for. You wrote that it was uh, the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict and an enormous opportunity potentially. Can you just discuss what are the elements of this initiative that we see the Biden White House really hanging hopes on? I mean, looking ahead to the 2024 presidential election, what are the elements of what they're talking about and why would it be in Israel's interest to embrace it? Yeah, the objectives before the elements are tackling or obstructing the China-Russia intensive uh, influence over the Middle East. That is very important to the Americans, and, and that's one. Second objective is blocking the influence of Iran. And the third is integrating Israel into the more modest uh, parts of the Arab states, creating uh, uh, various potentials of economic technology, climate change tackling, uh, enormous uh, endless uh, benefits that you can achieve by that and uh, the ending the war in Gaza by replacing Hamas with the Palestinian Authority. And the elements are, one, it's a defense treaty between Saudi Arabia and United States. They will receive a quality military edge in terms of 
supplying them, the Saudis' advanced uh, advanced uh, um, uh, military capabilities, and they will probably get the uh, Iranian enrichment plant for civilian reasons. That that is something the Saudis are eager for because. The JCPOA uh, allowed the same capabilities to Iran, and for that reasons, they, for, because of the fact they consider Iran as an existential threat, they, that's very important to the Saudis, and the Americans can supply all three of them. Saudis will strike kind of a deal with Israel, maybe it's a peace treaty or less than that, but that's really not settled yet. And because of the fact that there is American-Saudi defense treaty, we would probably have some kind of enhanced treaty between Israel and the United States because the United States will maintain the prominent factor of Israel as the most closer ally to the United States. And that cannot be allowed that another, another state in the Middle East will be more in touch with the United States. In return for that uh, configuration, Israel will accept the Palestinian Authority as the ruling entity in Gaza. Israel should declare some formal declaration of a vision of two-state solution as the end game. It's not really a detailed plan, more than a vision uh, that should be declared by the Israeli government, and a hostage deal will be associated with that grand plan. I think if you consider victory as achieving the goals of the war and enhancing and, and improving the balance of national security of Israel, you'll get both of them in that larger initiative, larger doctrine of the United States. You'll get the removal of the Hamas, the returning of the hostages, and integrating in the Middle East with the most, the more, the most important state in the Middle East in terms of Israeli-Arab conflict, which is Saudi Arabia. The problem is, of course, the political element. Agreeing this, the, the current government, uh, agreeing on a two-state solution vision as a declaration, it's really, I, I think, very, very difficult to achieve right now. And acknowledging the fact that the Palestinian Authority will return back to Gaza hints about the exception of the Oslo, agree, Oslo Agreement. And those two elements are very to this current government in Israel to accept. I was going to say it all sounds wonderful, but I wonder if it's hopelessly optimistic to think that in Israel's current political configuration, and I'm not just talking about the current government, but we can expect Israel to take a big step to the right after October 7th, whether it's at all possible to implement from the Israeli point of view, uh, along with you know the question of whether Hamas and the Palestinian Authority really can work together. I imagine they, that they cannot work with, together, and nobody really asks Hamas whether he will agree. The element Hamas will agree from a point of weakness. Weakening Hamas in the military operation that we are doing right now is a crucial condition in order to agree, to accept any kind of another authority to pull back, to get back to Gaza. So that's on us to do. That not that though that's a great initiative does not uh, release us from the uh, operation to destroy the military capability of Hamas, and if you diminish that to a certain level, they cannot really resist the returning back of the Palestinian Authority. The other 
element is the is the balancing the, the tension between improving dramatically the relationship of Israel with the Arab world which considered by the Biden administration and by the Prime Minister of Israel Netanyahu he had already declared that this is his number one goal take in mind that in the vision of Prime Minister Netanyahu tackling Iran is the most important thing to do and all of this new configuration really threatened Iran Iran could be the spoiler Iran and Qatar could be spoilers by because they will understand that that grand deal works in against their their interests so it, it comes back to the question that what's more important the political survival of of uh, uh, the prime minister in the current government or a grand vision that from our deepest place from the atrocities of the 7th of October from the lowest point in the min in in our history we can achieve something grand something that will create a new horizon and that's the real the question you Do you think that the aggression by the Houthis in Yemen, obviously they're uh, Iranian proxies, are really hammering home to uh, the U.S. and now to Britain since they've been involved in, uh, in conflict with the, with the Houthis, um, that Iran and its axis of resistance is a real global problem that affects the whole world? It's not just a regional issue? Well, well they've, they've proven that to the world. You know, we, we've tried so many times, I, as the, uh, when I was in office, when I was the head of intelligence, I, I, I tried to convince my colleagues that the Iranians' pro- not network of proxies is a global threat, not just the nuclear project. They listened and uh, approved the fact that the global threat by the Iranian enrichment is global. something that should be tackled by the international community but I, I thought that acknowledging that the militias the all of that there's that's really not a, this is a more tactical problem not strategic problem and there you have the hotels disrupting the ch- supply chain of the world blocking the one of the most important maritime ways and proving to the world that the Iranian people backed militias or rebels are a threat to the global security and uh, that's that's something done it's already approved secondly by obstructing the the shipments across the world they've they've hurt all of the major players in the global trade even China by they 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 attacked two vessels that came from the Hong Kong port so you Right now, I don't see any crucial long-range threat in the strategic level because the international community has woken and is working against the Houthis. Eventually, the question will not be the Houthis and their uh, prospects and the future. The question will be what will, what will become in, of the Iran network of militias. Will Iran stay aside? What the lessons learned by the Iranian, by... mobilizing their militias without any paying any price in the homeland Iran or by their former officials that's a question that should be answered in the future 
So the Houthis succeeded in waking up the Western world when you failed, right? Exactly. <laughs> we have to talk a little bit about the northern border. Everyone is so focused on Gaza, and uh, we're in this strange holding pattern in the north where we've been trying to weaken Hezbollah in case they launch all-out war against us, but we're trying to avoid all-out war because it would have such a high cost and because of U.S. pressure. But how long can Israel live with the cities of Batula and Kiryat Shmona empty, people uh, in places like Menara sitting from afar watching their homes be destroyed. You wrote a month ago that in the long run, we can't let Hezbollah continue to grow in strength, but that we should finish the mission in Gaza before all-out war is an option. Um, what about the North? Uh, in a briefing Saturday, um, the IDF spokesman was talking very tough. Defense Minister Gallant has emphasized that Gaza and the North are separate arenas and quiet in one won't guarantee quiet in the other. So even if we go to the ceasefire hostage deal in the South, what do you see happening in the North? There are two different problems. The problem of, of the threat posed by Hezbollah is one problem and the problem of the affiliation between Hamas and Hezbollah and kind of backing that they are providing them is another problem. Eliminating the, the, the letter that is that if we will stop in Gaza, they will cease fire. That really does not solve the first problem. The problem of the fact that we have allowed for many years the growth of enormous threat along our border. And it is a dual-headed th threat. One is the fire capability of Hezbollah, which is enormous. It can reach any kind, any point of Israel from any distance in, in Lebanon. That's not just in, the, that, that threat is not uh, located in the southern part of Lebanon. It's all across Lebanon. And the second threat is the issue of the ground uh, invasion capabilities of Hezbollah. Uh, in other words, the Radwan forces, those, are, those uh, special operatives, uh, highly skilled infantry soldiers of Hezbollah can potentially uh, create the atrocities of the 7th of October in the north. And for that reason, for that threat, we have evacuated 80,000 people from our northern border. So initiating uh, a, right now a dual operation of high scale, it's really something that we can end up with not achieving any of the goals of the war in each one of them. We should first of all focus our attention in the south. While doing that, we, can, we should focus our attention or create uh, the operation against Radwan forces in the north, only Radwan forces in the north. More moderate, more modest uh, objective. The, mo the objective should be uh, eliminating or forcing Hezbollah to withdraw Radwan forces to the Baka Valley, the northern part of Lebanon. After that withdrawal, we, have, we did not eliminate the fire capability threat. This is something that we should live with that for the time being, not indefinitely. Eventually, 
we should do something about it. But right now, during the fact that we should focus our attention in the Palestinian arena and in the what we have discussed before, the normalization potential, it is very complicated and delicate. We should focus our attention on Radwan forces. After Radwan forces, we leave the southern part of Lebanon. We will enhance our defensive capabilities on the northern front of Israel. We should demand the enhancement of the UNDOF, that the UN uh, force that keeps the, 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 the peace there in the, should keep the stability in the northern uh, border and maybe enhance the Lebanese armed forces, the LAF, LAF. And after doing that, we, we should address the Israeli public, the, 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 those 80,000 civilians and tell them there is no capability of a threat of uh, infiltration to your houses. We have eliminated and there is no threat. Yes, there is still a threat of fire, but that threat is threatening all of the civilians of Israel. And we will not evacuate Israel because of the threat of the long range missiles of, of uh, Hezbollah. And if we're gonna go to a large scale operation to eliminate that threat, it will be on our conditions, in our timing, in, in our terms, in a kind of a, of, of a plan that can bring us added value in, the, in the, the first steps of that kind of a future potential war. When we talk about these thousands of Israelis returning to their homes on the northern border, um, after the, the collapse of faith that happened on October 7th in the military and the political leadership and the failure of what people call the conception that Hamas was deterred, that they were hearing over and over again, I guess it's a question of whether they'll have enough faith and belief that there's enough deterrence in the North to go back to their homes. Just in that vein, it's been four months now since October 7th. There's been no formal investigations into the intelligence failures that led to it and the failures of, you know, what people are calling here the conception that Hamas is deterred, what went wrong inside the military intelligence framework, and the failures of battle readiness when the attack did happen. You at INS, with your top researchers, you've had time to look at it and think about it. Have you come up with an encompassing reason and theory for these huge failures of intelligence and the readiness that got us into the situation? And you're speaking, I guess, as somebody who, you know, not that long ago was part of that institution and that infrastructure. I'm just interested in your in your thoughts uh, four months down the line about what went wrong and how it can be prevented in the future. Very complicated question, because I can describe what happened and try to, and, and we can, as the Institute, we can give some assumptions or uh, of why that happened, but that is not really sufficient in order to fully understand the scale of the colossal failure in terms of intelligence and operation. In a, in a short sentence, it's because of preconception, pre, the perception of, of Hamas wants to secure its uh, sovereignty over Gaza and trying driving Intifada in the West Bank as a, its strategy. That is something that's profound, it was highly 
accepted by all of the intelligence community in Israel. And then when and when you are so convinced, so sure of yourself that that is the case, you eliminate uh, obstacles or you are eliminating pieces of information that can disrupt this kind of, of, of assurances that you have. That bias is long known in the intelligence community, and for that reason, it does not give the necessary explanation for what happened, because the intelligence establishment needs to know to go over that the, the, the mental bias of assurances that we know that is a, the threat of any intelligence officer, and nothing worked in that element. And it is the second time it happens to us. It happened in the Yom Kippur war. So I don't really have the, the, the explanation that will satisfy me. And, and for that reason, I, I can describe it and do not really accept the description. Do you look back at yourself and how you were thinking and whether you believe that Hamas was deterred? And I mean, do you examine what you thought was maybe some sort of selective bias on your part of overlooking certain realities on the ground because you were so convinced of that sense of deterrence and Hamas' decision to be a sovereign state-like entity? Of course. There, there is no night when I go to sleep that I, that I don't think about my period as the head of intelligence and ask myself whether I was wrong in my assumptions of, of regarding Hamas. And I keep examining, keep trying to figure out when, if, if, I, if I was totally wrong all of, for all the period of my uh, period in charge, I know for in definitely no, because I have the proofs, and the main one of them is the Operation Guardians of the Wall, because there you have evidence of them uh, initiating uh, some sort of operation. So that's benchmark of future for the future investigation. There you have a point in time that you knew that they didn't have the capabilities that was shown in the 7th of October. And the initiative to provoke violence there was explained very, very clearly. I can't really elaborate in that element. So out from that point further on, I keep asking myself whether we can what went wrong, whether we were wrong, and when Hamas changed its strategy, and how that those kind of capabilities grew without, uh, without the international community uh, explaining about it or uh, alerting about it. Those are questions I keep asking myself, yeah, I think, on a daily basis. This is a podcast in English that's going out to the rest of the world, and the world is extremely concerned about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. You've described battles taking place in very dense refugee camps that explain some of the very high civilian casualty numbers in Gaza. We in Israel look at our security, look at our need to keep our borders safe, uh, keep our residents safe. 
But um, there's also a civilian population in Gaza, which now, because of the delegitimation of, uh, of UNRWA and the withdrawal of funds, is having even more problems. How does Israel strategically balance its need to maintain world opinion, to maintain support in the world for its strategic and military interests, and the deep concern that the world is showing now over the growing humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza, given that Gazan civilians are caught between Israel's need to defend itself and the apparent non-considerations of the Hamas leadership as to their welfare? First of all, let me be very clear. Israel is providing and uh, allowing any form of humanitarian supply of food, water, medical assistance, whatever can, can be provided. The Israeli allows it to cross into Gaza. There, are, there is no restriction. The only restriction is the security inspection. Apart from a security inspection, when entering Gaza, there is no barrier. There are two, for just for example, two main water, clear water pipes that free flow from Israel to Gaza as we speak right now. The convoys of uh, food and uh, supply are, are there. There is no. And there are no restrictions, and there is a large-scale criticism of that from the families of the hostages that claim, how come we don't have the humanitarian uh, aid to see or to release the hostages, and we provide humanitarian aid for the enemy, etc. And although all of that criticism, Israel continues on the free flow of that humanitarian aid. Secondly, please don't really consider the numbers that are being provided by the Hamas military of health as credible numbers. That's something that should be recognized in a very criticized manner. The numbers that are being uh, spread into the air cannot really be explained just for... uh, we are, we are searching, for example, for graveyards. If, there, if the numbers were correct, we should have seen enormous parts of graveyard in the Gaza Strip, and we cannot really see that from our imaging that, we t- that the IDF takes from time to time. So I, I, I think that eventually uh, Israel is doing its best in order to separate from civilians to terrorists, and the number of the ratio between the casualties and the not involved, the collateral damage is relatively good. Uh, we, are, we are sorry for non, every non-civilian person who has died is something that is not, uh, not uh, something that we drive to, we not, it's not something that we achieve. We, we try to, eliminate, to, to diminish that numbers, but it's something happens during war, the wartime, the war has its prices. But we are trying to provide any kind of humanitarian aid in order to avoid diseases and uh, other uh, uh, other problems in, in that element. I'll finish with the question that's on every Israeli's mind, and I know that has uh, consumed a lot of hearts and minds around the world. Uh, we don't know exactly how many hostages are still alive, but we, we believe there's, you know, more than 100, probably 130. Uh, again, we don't know the fate of all of them. How optimistic are you that we are going to get the bulk of the hostages out of Gaza alive? I'm not that optimistic, sorry to say that, because 
hostage deal that carries without large numbers of prisoners, murderers that going to be released from prisoner is not going to get popularity in the Israelis, uh, Israeli society. And it will, I, I, I think it will not be approved by the Israeli government. Second, time passes and the fate of those poor, poor hostages is working against us each time, each day works against our interest. I hope that in a framework of, a, of a, the American initiative that convinced the Israeli government to support that kind of a deal with its all major problems. But in the broader element, in the broader aspect, that can be approved because it's striking uh, the Israeli national security in a broader scale. Well, I wish we could end on a more cheerful note. Uh, I guess we both hope that uh, that you're wrong. Um, we would all love for something miraculous to happen regarding the hostages and hope that this conflict somehow can find a way to resolve itself in the best way possible. Tamir Heyman, Managing Director of the Institute of National Security Studies, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And that wraps things up for the Haaretz podcast. Thanks to my guests, Tamir Heyman, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.